Hi, I'm Jess Binneth. And I'm Kate Montague. And you're listening to the Audiocraft Podcast, a series of sessions from our 2018 festival recorded on the day by ABCRN. This episode is Pod Law. It covers all those scary questions about the tricky legal stuff you bump up against when making a podcast, like defamation, music rights and release forms. The legal eagles in the room today are Suzanne Derry, Brett Oten and Eliza Salos. Suzanne Derry is the Senior Solicitor at the Arts Law Centre of Australia and their Director of National Partnerships and Programs. Suzanne has worked for a number of community legal centres and has experience with entertainment law practice. Joining her is Brett Oten, the Principal of Brett Oten Solicitors. Since 1992, Brett has represented many of Australia's leading musicians, personalities, film and TV producers, startups and creative businesses. Brett also sits on the board of Audiocraft. Moderating this session is Eliza Salos, a solicitor with Hall Payne Lawyers, practising in employment law, industrial relations and defamation. Eliza was previously the Artistic Director of Underbelly Arts, the Executive Officer of Music New South Wales and was the co-founder and EP of the podcast All The Best. So today, as you know, we're talking about where the law intersects with podcasting and we're going to do that by going through a case study. Um, But I'm sure you all have your own case studies as well. And so I'd ask, um, it's not going to be one of those sessions where we wait till the end for questions. I'm really happy for this to be collaborative. We are going to take it, uh, break it down into three three different steps. Um, So we'll be talking about what happens at the idea stage then when you get into the booth and you're actually making the podcast and then once it's done where do you take it what do you do and what are the legal implications of decisions you might make uh, at that stage Um, so the example we're going to uh, uh, kind of go through and use to to prompt the legal questions is about uh, Two, two people called Jai and Isabella. Um, and as I'm saying this, try and think about what legal questions might come up in this. And I know you are probably all used to thinking about creative questions, and I'm sure there are many in this example, but think about the legal ones. So Jai and Isabella want to produce a podcast together. Their podcast is titled Love on Parole, and it'll follow the journeys of recently released prisoners and their search for love. Each week, they meet a new character and follow this, including how they ended up in prison and their love journey post-release, drawing on on human commonalities. The podcast will explore the crimes committed and also explore the relationships post-release. Jai and Isabel know that in some instances, those associated with the prisoners might not want to be identified and might not be comfortable being interviewed. They are considering recording conversations with people, uh, with those people without them knowing. They will use snippets of audio from television and radio. Jai and Isabel love the music of Hermitude and, uh, and want to use it in their podcast to give it a quintessentially Australian feel. Once they have finished the podcasts, they plan to distribute them through iTunes. They're considering approaching online dating or matchmaking agencies to see whether they would like to sponsor the podcast. Now, about 10 years ago when I was making radio, I would be like, sweet, let's just do it and have no legal questions, <laughs> even while studying law. But... <laughs> Um, can anyone here think of any legal questions that might emerge in that case study? Yeah, one at the front. You can't record people without them knowing and not have their permission and use it. Great, you get a gold star already. Any, anyone else with, with an issue? Yep. <laughs> like any good hypothetical, when you're sitting in a room with three lawyers, there are always going to be a billion legal issues, um, which can and will emerge for Jai and Isabella as they set out to make love on parole. Um, <laughs> that was that was not. <laughs> Look, 
Suzanne came up with the example and I feel like she, she set me up. There was a bit of a, a honey trap. Yeah, we won't be talking about that specific part of their relationship. Okay, okay, let's get, let's get into it. So, idea to reality. Um, the, first, the first line of that example, Jai and Isabella want to produce a podcast together. My lawyer red flags are already waving. Now, Brett, why would you possibly need lawyers to intervene if two people want to make a podcast? Well, I think, and, it, and it's relevant, I presume, to everyone in this room, that you, you may begin to uh, undertake a creative endeavour as a hobby, but, but most people uh, would prefer to do it as a career if they can if they can, because that would be more interesting probably than whatever else it is that they do to pay their bills. And so uh, you, you have to think of it as if it's a business, which is uh, not what creative people necessarily want to do um, when they begin their creative adventure. No one ever joined a band or worked on a podcast to hang around with lawyers. Uh, but uh, I've got two things to say about that. One is that if you work out how you are going to work together, how you're going to make decisions about the content of your work, about how your work will be um, released into the wild, whether you will accept sponsorship or not, who uh, might those sponsors be, you've got to work out how you're going to work that out. And you've also got to work out how you will divide the money if there is any money. And even though you might think that's antithetical to the creative process, I have a very different view, which is if you work that out early and lock it down and have those decisions, that will then free you to do the things that you actually want to do. The other thing is, I think, uh, if I may generalise, but I probably shouldn't, um, because I don't think it's confined to the creative world, I think in all human interactions, People typically would prefer not to have a difficult conversation. So you might think, look, I think this is how we want to do it, but I think Suzanne, my partner, maybe has a different view, so we better not talk about that. Uh, in fact, the opposite is true. You, you need to talk about it now and work out whether you can find a way clear to work together and whether you have the same ideas. Because a lot of people think, well, if I find out that Suzanne and I have very different views and we can't do it together, that's a disaster. I would say the opposite. If you can find out that you shouldn't do this creative project together, that is incredibly valuable information. And you should both go off and do the things that you should be doing. And it's better to find that out when you've done nothing than it is to find it out when you're a year down the track and you've uh, invested an enormous amount of time and creative endeavour into it. Um, that might be a longer answer to your short question than you wanted, but uh, as a lawyer, you know, I do tend to wang on. Might I also say, as much as I encourage you to have the hard conversations, uh, the more people that are prepared to have hard conversations, the less work there'll be for lawyers to do, which, in my opinion, would be a tragedy, but it might be, uh, it might be good for all of you concerned. You're doing yourself out of some work there, Brett. Um, so what, what does that consist of, you know, to have that hard conversation? Is that just a conversation between Jai and Isabel? Yeah, I think so. And, and Jai and Isabel, you don't need to go to a lawyer. Jai and Isabel could go and get a lawyer to draw up a partnership agreement which sets out how they're going to do things, how they make decisions. They don't have to do that. 
they could uh, go to the pub and work out on a beer coaster that, you know, one of them makes creative decisions, another makes business decisions or whatever, one of them makes decisions every, you know, um, second week and the other one makes decisions. It doesn't matter whether they write it out in layman's terms, whether they get a lawyer to do it. The most important thing is that they don't do nothing, that they work out how they're going to work together in whatever way they want to do that. All right, so they've done that. They're both on the same page and they're really excited about their idea. Now, what, what rights are there in that idea, Suzanne? Um, I think this is one that, that comes up a lot for people who are creating content. Uh, it's important to know uh, about because it might direct you as to how you share ideas. Copyright law doesn't protect ideas. So if you've got a really great idea and you go and share it with the person who's sitting next to you today and they make that idea into a podcast, there's nothing that you can do to stop them from doing that. Now, you might be really keen on that because there are a lot of people who are like, it's all, you know, share everything. But as Brett was saying, at some point, if what you're wanting to do is to turn that idea into currency for you as a podcast producer and be able to say, look, this is something that's really unique. Other people are not doing this. Thinking quite carefully about how you share that idea is important because the law won't generally stop other people from using your idea. I will just say, though, that you can... You know, if you're sort of entering into some beginning conversations with somebody that you think you'd like to work on a podcast with, it's, again, quite a formal legal step, but getting them to sign what's called a confidentiality agreement, which essentially says, I'm going to give you information now that's confidential. I don't want you to share it with other people and I don't want you to use it to compete with me. Um, it is, is a good idea. Having said that, uh, you guys are working in an industry where a lot of people will not sign those agreements because they are very aware that they are working in an industry where they get different ideas all the time. So if they sign your agreement that they're not going to use or share any of your five wonderful ideas, what's to say that the next person who walks into the room might not have something very similar that they then end up in some kind of legal stoush with you around because they've used or shared it. So I think just... When you're at that beginning phase and you've got a really wonderful idea, think strategically about how you share it. And I was really quite impressed in the, in the um, kind of intro sessions, was chatting with people and some of them were saying, I said to them, oh, so what kind of podcast are you working on? Well, I'm still sort of feeling out exactly what the parameters of that are going to be and I want to put something more concrete together before I can really pitch it and I was like okay that's that's an interesting for a lawyer to hear that that's quite an interesting approach because it means that you're a little bit more protected but the challenge is obviously how do you get people interested in what you're doing unless you share enough to kind of lure them in and that's yeah. always always a balance so I would say um, it's a really useful thing to get legal advice of course I'd say that because I'm a lawyer um, and I'm not sure if we're going to have a chance for a plug at the end but the Arts Law Centre is a community legal centre, which means that its lawyers don't get paid a lot of money. So we understand this process of like trying to make money from doing what you really enjoy. But what we do get a reward from is helping creatives that we really believe in and, and loving working within that. So if you've got a question and you don't want to have to pay for legal advice, you can call Arts Law and say, look, this is what I'm thinking of doing. 
what do I need to have on my radar before I share the idea? I think I've over-talked that. No, no. That's the other distinction I'd make is that Suzanne's completely correct that there's no copyright in your idea, but when you, um, when you uh, begin to reduce your idea to material form, then it is protected. So the idea for the podcast that you might make there is no copyright in that, as Suzanne says. But if you start to write an outline, prepare scripts, things like that, then those things are protected. So if I over lunch with Kate, she says to me, what are you working on? I go, flying cars. I can't stop her from trying to invent her own flying cars. But if I show her my carefully prepared designs for the flying cars, she can't take those. We've got... Um a free confidentiality deed on our website. So there's really no excuse not to have one. It's, it, confidential information is a funny thing. You sort of need to identify what the information is that you want to keep confidential in order for it to be protected. So um, have a, there's an info sheet on our website called Protecting Your Ideas, and it's quite a good one to read, and it's also got that deed at the back of it. But, but to address that point a little bit more, what I said before, if you go to a lawyer, then a lawyer will think about things that you may not have thought about, will prepare a more detailed agreement. But the idea that you might write out a piece of paper in, in lay terms what you're trying to achieve and get someone to sign it, that is way better than doing nothing yeah. at all. And maybe it won't go as far or it won't address as many things as as a professional who's experienced in the area might do, but, but I like the way you're thinking. Mm. Yeah. And how does idea ownership change if you're perhaps working for someone? Someone's employed you and you're making a podcast as part of that job. Uh, if you are employed, then your employer owns the work that you do in the course of your employment automatically. Uh, it's a really important point that when you move out of the employer-employer relationship, employee-employer relationship into contractors... When you contract someone to do something, you don't automatically own the work that they do for you and copyright can only be transferred under a written agreement. So we see people all the time who are starting up a business and they go, I paid Kevin you know, $100 to do my logo and because I paid for it, I own the logo. That's not true. If Kevin is your employee, you own the logo, but if you if, if Kevin is a friend who's just doing the logo for you, you won't own it by virtue of paying Kevin. You have to get Kevin to sign something that says, in return for getting paid $100, I transfer the copyright in the logo to Brett. And I'll just add to that, if I could, Brett, that one of the complications with podcasts is that often what somebody else is paying you to produce for them is a sound recording. And when you pay somebody to create a sound recording, uh, there can be arguments that what you've done is, is, is effectively to have been commissioned to create a recording. And when that happens under the Copyright Act, you may have lost your copyright. So it, it just it, absolutely what you need to be doing is to have agreements around these things. And I mean, usually the person paying you is going to present you with a document. They don't want to relinquish any money until they know it's theirs. Um, or they know what they can do with it, for example. But when you're working on a project where there isn't money changing hands, sometimes I think that can actually be the more complicated one. Yeah, and you, you don't want to... Um, things are a lot clearer if you are in an employment situation yeah. or you're funded by someone and you're making... But, but if you are as Jai and Isabella, let's not forget Jai and Isabella, um, uh, 
creating some work independently, you don't want to go out into the world with your podcast, important elements of which you don't even own. So you need to methodically secure to yourself all of the bits that go into making your finished product. And, and sorry, just to be clear, so you can have a contract with somebody without having any paper. So you can have a contract with somebody because you've said to them, hey, I'd like you to go off and make this recording. And they say, yeah, that's cool. I charge $250 an hour, which includes my studio hire time. Okay, great, go ahead and do it. That can be a contract. So you don't actually have to have something in writing. So don't, don't ever think that because you don't have something in writing, you're in a much safer land. You're in a, actually in a much more vulnerable position because what that person understood and what you understood might be two totally different things. And these don't have to be complex documents. Uh, you can have very simple templates. Uh, I know the Arts Law Centre have some and, and use those as a matter of course and just get into the habit of getting people to sign things. And, and Suzanne is quite right. You don't need something in writing. You can have um, completely verbal contracts. The problem with verbal contracts is that when people are involved in a dispute, they almost never have the same recollection about what the terms of those verbal contracts were. Call me cynical if you like, uh, but uh, that is the problem. Uh, I have a question, though, in all of that. So we've been talking about the ownership of ideas what happens if you've got interest from say a broadcasting partner and you want you're, you're balancing up the idea of you know how much of my idea do i share and what happens if they then take that idea and run with it i'm hearing some yeses how do you balance the the benefit of potentially getting that reach or that audience or that funding with ownership of the idea i presume you're so if you end up doing a deal with that say party... Say we're pre, pre Yeah, exactly. Deal. Then the ownership will dealt with very clearly in any agreement. Um, I think it comes down to uh, how badly you need the assistance of the body that you're talking to because you are not going to get someone to invest in you without telling them what you are doing. But um, there is a risk that if you divulge something to a third party that they might run with it themselves. I have to say in my career, I think the risk of that is much lower than people believe it to be. I think people who are less experienced believe that there are rampant theft of ideas and, and I'm, I'm not sure that the people um, that might do that to you are... Um, either evil enough or organised enough to steal your ideas. Um, so I think it's much less of a practical problem than many people believe it to be. But the fact remains you, have to, you will have to talk to people about uh, your ideas. As Suzanne or Eliza said earlier, you know, the ABC or, or, or a television network are not going to sign a non-disclosure agreement with you when they're developing many of their own projects which may or may not be similar. So you have to... Uh, balance the potential rewards of finding a partner versus the risk of divulging what you are working on. But if you have developed it properly and kept your drafts of your scripts and you can show that you've talked to people about it, you know, you can establish that you worked on this project long prior to that meeting and that might be helpful. Uh, I'll just add to that something that a film lawyer once said to me about this 
real tension between getting yourself out there, showing the sorts of ideas that you have, have sort of currency and relevance and power, and also then being able to convince somebody to use you, is that you should be spending just as much time on workshopping your idea as you are on proving that you are the person to make that idea into a podcast. So if you are just walking into a meeting and saying to somebody, here's the world's most amazing idea, it's about this person, and you can't show them that you have an MOU with the person that will be your subject, that you've already retained them as your subject, that they're keen to work with you, that you've got a relationship there. You've already got somebody who's gonna be your producer. You've got that all, all of your ducks are in a row. It's really hard to then turn around and say, oh, but they took, you know, they took my idea. If what you aren't actually selling is the package of the idea plus me producing it. Now, oh, yeah, we've got a question. I was just wondering if the, if the, what, what the situation was, if you, um, and should you be a bit careful about uploading something wholly or partially to, to Mixcloud or Soundcloud or something like that? I think that... Um, do you mean like a teaser or... Maybe, yeah, just to get some interest or maybe, you know, um, but should you be careful about you know, whether it's part of the program that you're actually trying to podcast? Well, I think there's two elements to that. The first is you should not, uh, you know, when we've talked about securing all the elements of your own work, you know, you shouldn't upload something that you don't own. So if it's a teaser or whatever, you should make sure that you have properly got the right to, to do that and then... Um, if you're doing that to try to attract the interest of third parties, then I would say what I said before, which is there is a risk in um, you know beginning to show your work that others might take it and run with it, but you're not going to get the assistance of others if that's what you need without showing them something. So it's a it's a balance between how badly you need assistance versus how scared you are about losing it. And I think I think. Suzanne's point is a great one about building a package and making yourself important because the reality is that most people are pretty lazy. So uh, if they think it's a great idea and you can execute it really well, they'd much rather pay you. I mean, you know, people with resources, they'd much rather pay you to do it than try to do it themselves. All right, now we'll, we'll take one more question on this area. Uh, yes. Uh, just in a practical sense, am I right in thinking that if you have written out your idea and emailed it to yourself, you've got proof then of the date that... Like it's that you've designed it and it's a date record, rather than sort of keeping something in a drawer or you know you want a date stamp on it. So documenting your idea is really good because as we said, there's no copyright in an idea. So you want to keep your drafts of your scripts or your outlines or whatever they are. What you've described is a useful process. What it does is if you're ever involved in a dispute about the provenance of the idea. That doesn't actually prove that it was your work, but it does prove that you were in possession of that work at a certain date, and that might be relevant and, and helpful. One thing I would add to that, going back to, say, those tricky conversations, it's such a nerdy lawyer thing to say, but file note things, and that's a great way to file note because you automatically get the, the timestamp. Um, yeah. yeah, so if, if you've come to some verbal agreement with someone, sorry, when I say file note, that's... Uh, what I mean is you just write notes of what the agreement was, even if something's not in paper because it just makes it a bit too icky to write something down. Write down your recollection of the conversation because con contemporaneous notes are really helpful um, if, if it does get to the stage where you unfortunately have to bring lawyers in. If you're the head of the FBI, it's also very good to do that <laughs> when you've had a contentious meeting with the president. 
It's very useful in that circumstance. Um, Now, we we really need to get a hustle on, but I wanted to ask if you are in that fortuitous situation where you are talking with, say, a a partner um, that that might help you create the podcast, what are, for both of you, and just quickly, three questions, uh, the three key questions you would ask during that negotiation? How does the money work? Like, what am I going to get paid to do this in terms of budget, personal uh, payments, share of any profits? Uh, if there are any, um, who owns it, both who owns the recordings we are going to make together and who owns the rights to make future episodes of this, whether together or apart, and uh, how does the decision-making process work? What sort of creative freedom do I have? Can I, do, do you, the funder, have to accept the, the show that I deliver or do you have the ability to shape that show? There's my three. Strong three. Everything that Brett said, but also, like, what is the brief? What are you actually asking me to do? Do you have examples of what you're asking me to do? What is the sort of sound that you want? Because it's all, you know, the legal process is one thing. The creative process of what somebody thinks a podcast ought to sound like and what you produce might be two completely different things. And you don't want to have spent all of this incredibly skilled time and resources getting it to a stage where the other person says to you, so this is absolutely not what we talked about. And then you have to go back to the drawing board or run the risk that you're then in dispute with that other person. So getting a nice clear brief um, if they're briefing you. If it's collaboration and you are deciding together on how this is going to work, making sure that you understand and they understand that that's what is happening rather than them at some point going, yeah, I... No, actually, I call the shots on this. This is not really an equal collaboration. So I think getting... And clarity is helpful in a legal sense, but it's also helpful in a practical sense for makers. You, As Suzanne says, you absolutely want to know what what the arrangement is, who has creative control, um, and it just makes your job easier and you have a bit more freedom to do what you want, hopefully, or, or at least you know where the param- what the parameters are. Now, we've got to get back to Jai and Isabella because they desperately need some more advice. Um, so as, as we said, in some instances, those associated with the prisoners don't want to be identified. They might not be comfortable being interviewed. Um, what are some of... What do you do with interview subjects? What's the ideal situation if you're proposing to interview someone? What do you need to make sure they can that that a recording someone doing the recording can use whatever comes out of what they're recording? Uh, I think it's really really important when you're going to do an it's just deal with the scenario of doing an interview where the person knows that you're recording them, you've talked to them about the podcast, you've talked to them about being recorded, and they're fine with that. Um, it's a really good idea to get a signed interviewee release from that person. And that's basically them and you having a conversation which is then put on paper where you explain that what you're going to do is to ask questions or have them talk about a particular topic and you are going to record them. And then after you record them, what your process is, that you're going to take that recording and you're actually going to use it in your podcast. And then once you've taken it and used it in your podcast, what you plan to do is to distribute that podcast. Because for everybody in this room, that seems like a totally obvious thing. If I'm going to record you for my podcast, surely you know that that that's what I'm going to do. But if you're interviewing somebody who is not from this world of of sort of podcasting or content, that might not necessarily be something that they've thought about. They might trust you. 
They might be a friend, somebody that you've talked to for a long time about their story. And so they want to tell you their story or they want to help you with their project, but they might not necessarily appreciate what the trajectory of you actually making that recorded interview is. So having a conversation and then having it put down on paper, again, if you don't have the funds to retain a lawyer to draft one for you, Arts Law's got a template. Well, I'd say that at the beginning, this yeah. is an interview with so-and-so and, yeah, I'll just, yeah, I would say this is an interview between you know, me and so-and-so and, -so, and yeah. this is how it's going to be used. I've talked to them. Yeah, yeah no, I think I that's a great that. way of documenting that, I, that you both agree. Yeah, and so yeah. I might also say I might repurpose this in the future in another project. Are you fine for that as well? Mm. And yeah. I also get them to say yes to that so that I, so that I can use it again. If My I only to. comment around doing it that way yeah. is that to some extent what you're doing is putting your interviewee a little bit on the spot in that they haven't necessarily had an opportunity to go off and get their own advice about what it means to consent to that because you're sort of asking for agreement contemporaneously. Uh, look, I think, again, as Brett keeps saying, it's better to have that conversation and that recorded than to not have had the conversation at all. Um, I think giving people a bit of notice and saying, look, this is what I'd like you to sign, sending it to them before they're in a studio so that they can actually look at it and think about it and, and come back to you is, is good process. So it's starting to build for yourself a bit of a checklist of you know what am I what do I actually need to do when I'm going to go and record an interview? I really need to remember to get that release because time and time again, people that come to Arts Law have the challenge of not having got their releases signed at the time that they are recording, and then having to chase those releases. Oh, and if someone doesn't sign it, what a what a you know you've you've built yeah. your podcast around this this great interview that's been given, and then suddenly they don't allow you to use that audio, which would. Be, be a bit heartbreaking. We've got one question and then we'll move on. Yep. I'm not sure if you're familiar with The Opposition, which was a documentary film where the release was given and then 10 years later was withdrawn. Mm -hmm. Caused a major headache for the documentary filmmakers. And as someone who's um, working with a project that's taking a very long time, the idea that a release isn't actually ironclad is obviously a terrifying thought for anyone who's actually got all the releases. Um, what can you do for a project that's taking a long time and, and what would your advice be around making sure that release is, the person is still releasing other than just going back and saying, are you sure? Because it seemed like in that situation the release could be contested and, and the, all the permission was withdrawn. I, I, I cannot answer that. <laughs> well, I think, it, I think it depends on the terms of the release. Um, you'll find when the more you hang around with lawyers, you'll hear the expression, it all depends um, a lot. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, I would really query whether a properly drafted release could be withdrawn. And um, I don't know about the specifics of that circumstance. Um, but certainly uh, you want to have your releases drafted in a manner where somebody can't change their mind a day, a year or ten years later. That's the, uh, that's the yep. best advice I could give. And uh, Absolutely. And that is why having an arrangement with somebody where you say to them, you're giving me permission to record you and use this in my podcast, but I'll come back to you and talk to you about it before I release my podcast, gives the option and leaves open the uncertainty around what kinds of consent or editorial function they might have. I mean, as a lawyer who looks at releases that people sign, I like to see a really tight release that basically says, I'm recording you to use this for the podcast, no backsies. 
Yeah, and, and this for this... Uh, you know, uh, otherwise why are we doing this if uh, I'm not actually certain that this is creative content I can use? And, and this comes back to the hard questions thing. If, if, you know, it might be tougher to interview a subject when you've presented them with a legal document asking them to give you certain rights, but if you're going to spend, particularly on a long-term project, years of your life working on it and the most important interviewee uh, doesn't actually want to participate, you want to find that out as quickly as possible. No backs is the official legal um, expression. Eliza, uh, just a quick Okay, super add on. quick. Super yeah. quick. I used to work in an organisation where they had in perpetuity, in the universe and all of that, and people were scared to, to sign those. Uh, do you have to put all that guff in? What, well... We own this in perpetuity yeah, across the universe. You, you don't, but the reason that they put that stuff in there is to exactly the situation that we're talking about now. So by saying in perpetuity, it meant they have the rights um, forever and the person can't back out. Uh, for getting people to sign for the universe, you know, if Elon Musk gets to Mars, there may be a very vibrant podcast market there and then you'll have the rights. Um, but of course, the more onerous you make the release, the greater rights that you get but the harder it may be to get someone to sign it. And so, Tim, there's a balancing act between securing your position and actually getting out the front door and getting someone to sign it. And, and, and I can't pretend that that balance is an easy one to strike, but you know, bigger organisations certainly go harder in that regard generally. And they tend to have more say, you know, there's less ability to tweak a contract. Well, and, and those kind of documents tend to come uh, as part of a greater investment. And so their bargaining position is, I am going to secure rights and they are a bit more scary, but I'm giving you a lot of money to give me those rights and do you want the money or don't you? Or, or a big profile. Or, I, we need to move on. So I'm, I, I'm going to just quickly, <laughs> just, sorry. Um, just so that, I think one of the things is for you to be really comfortable about why you're giving somebody else a document. Don't give it to them because... Brett or I have said you should get that signed. Give it to them because you actually understand why you need to give somebody else a document because contracting with somebody is part of a conversation. It's not separate to your relationship with them. It's a document of your relationship. So if you're not comfortable with the fact that you're asking them to release in perpetuity, that's an issue that the two of you need to iron out and you should be getting a bit of legal advice about that. Now, Jai and Isabella really need some help because... Uh, um some of the prisoners they're working with have a couple of matters still before the court and Isabella is such a great interviewer that she's gotten them to talk in great depth about some of that. Um, and you see that a lot, you know, it's not going to be relevant for everyone in the room, but if you, you know, true crime is a, it's a big podcast market at the moment. What, are there any issues around contempt of court, Suzanne? You can see me nervously looking down at my notes. I was up until midnight last night just revising this because I was certain someone was going to ask me a super hard contempt issue question. Um, I, I think the thing with contempt that you, that you need to remember is in Australia we've got a legal system which treats people as if they are innocent until they are proven guilty. And so what contempt of court is really about is whether or not the information that you are publishing is going to prejudice that person's ability to have a fair trial. So are you telling the public, which might include members of a jury, because remember our juries are made up of people just like you and me, are you going to be telling people stuff about this person who has been charged with the offence 
that is not material to their current um, trial. For example, that they've previously been acquitted of three other similar offences or that they've previously been sentenced for three other similar offences. Um, so, and this can be a really tricky issue because of the whole cold case um, phenomena in terms of the way that it, people worldwide are telling stories, whether it's in film or podcast, um, and the sort of true crime stuff, where you're really, uh, somebody earlier was saying, you're almost becoming more knowledgeable about the details sometimes than the individual people who are involved are on their own. And so you are, as the sort of aggregator of all of that information, really in a position to publish a story which quite heavily could suggest one way or the other somebody's guilt or innocence. Um, so I think if you, if you are in the business of telling stories about people who have been charged with offences which have not yet been decided before a court, it is a good idea to get some legal advice about the sort of information that you plan to publish in your podcast so that you don't get into trouble. Because contempt of court is quite a serious offence and you can be fined or actually imprisoned for being in contempt of the court. And I'm going to make a podcast about podcasters in jail for not getting contempt of court <laughs> advice. It's going to be fascinating. Okay, Love and Parole is out. It's podcasters in jail. Um, but it is, it's very difficult. And I put Suzanne in a very difficult position because giving general advice on that is tough and it will always come down to the circumstances of what it is you're, um, you're, you're building. Yes. I, I just wanted to add that the other type of contempt that podcasters are sometimes concerned about is where what you're doing is what's called scandalising the court, which is actually far less interesting than it sounds. It's where you are saying things about a judge or a jury that cast aspersions as to the fairness of the decisions that are made. So that you are, the, the nature of your publication essentially lowers the public's esteem of our judicial process, um, which is an issue. So, oh, I have yeah. so many judges I want to, I want to scandalise. <laughs> um, sorry, that's not on the podcast, right? Uh, so, uh, which brings us to defamation. Um, Suzanne, one of the guys Jai has interviewed has said some really wild things about this investment banker he used to work with. The material is 100% gold and he wants to include it um, in his podcast. Can he? It depends. Uh, I... Look, uh, defamation, just so that um, everybody's comfortable what it, what it means, because I think we inherit a lot of our sense of what defamation is from watching American TV. In Australia, defamation is where you say something or imply something about someone else that makes other people not like them as much as they used to. Um, and, for example, podcasting in, the, in that way about your investment banker and saying things about that banker... Um, can be a problem. So, as you can hear, the threshold for defaming somebody is actually pretty low. You know, it's quite easy to say something about somebody that might lower their reputation. But to measure that, there are a number of sort of defences that you could rely on. Um, again, really complex. Make sure you're getting legal advice before just deciding you've got this whiz-bang defence that'll protect you in all circumstances. But one of them is justification or truth. So that is around where what you are saying, the facts of what you are saying, are true. And as a result, if people draw imputations from those facts, which might or might not be damaging of that person, 
you can rely on the truth of what you said. And that sounds like a really simple thing. Oh, it's true, the investment banker was corrupt. But if in fact a court hasn't found that the investment banker was corrupt, and you're just making that statement because you think that everybody happily agrees that investment bankers are corrupt, your problem becomes that there's a presumption again of that person's innocence. So if you're claiming they're corrupt and they sue you for defamation, you need to prove on the basis of documents um, or other evidence that they in fact are corrupt. And that can be a really difficult thing to do. And I think there is a session later on, Kate will give me a nod or not, but around journalism and how it intersects with podcasting. And a lot of these will be issues that you come at from a practical view rather than a legal view, but often the two intersect. And I'd recommend heading along to that if any of these issues are relevant. Now, I really um, under-anticipated how interesting releases would be. So we're going to do a pop, <laughs> pop through all of the other matters. Um, so apologies for skimming on questions. Now, someone in our case study flagged secret recordings. Um, and so, I, Brett, I was hoping you could talk me through, is, is it ever okay to just secretly slip a recorder under and get some good audio? Look, I'm not a criminal lawyer, and so my knowledge of, um, uh, of, of the law in that area is pretty limited. But my understanding is that basically you need consent of a person to make a recording of them. There may well be exceptions to that, but I'm not the person to answer that question definitively, but I think that's a good starting point. And uh, if you need to know more than that, you might want to talk to someone who's a bit smarter than me about that area. Well, one area I know you know heaps about is music. And we mentioned Hermitude was like an essential bed to have under this great Aussie podcast. What, what are issues with using music in your podcast? Well, basically, if you want to use music that you don't own, uh, in your podcast or indeed in your film or your TV show or anything like that, you need to um, license the rights to do that. Music licensing is pretty complicated because there are two separate rights. There's the rights in the recording, there's the underlying right in the music publishing, which people don't necessarily understand. And, and if, you, if you don't get both of those licenses, you might as well have none of those licenses. Uh, there are public, and I, and I am ripping through this very quickly, there are um, uh, collecting societies and collective licensing organisations like APRA and AMCOS that can, or the PPCA, that can on occasion licence those things to you under a broader licence. But basically the bottom line is that you need consent. And, and consent is actual consent and, and we see many people say to us well I sent them an email and no one ever got back to me so that's cool isn't it I'm sure they'd like it or um, I couldn't find who owned that music so I put it in and if they get in touch with me I'll take it out and that'll be cool uh, none of those things are correct and uh, just as you probably would not like somebody taking and repurposing your podcast uh, the crea other creators incredibly may not want you to do to do that with their work. But what about material that might be under a Creative Commons license? What does that mean? So Creative Commons is a uh, is a collective licensing regime where certain creators, be they musicians, software programmers. Um, make their work publicly available for others to use in certain defined circumstances. Uh, I think that well-known musicians who have a career as an artist 
are typically highly unlikely to make their music available via a Creative Commons license. Okay, one quick question. While the mic's coming there, I'm going to jump onto borrowing audio. If you have this great grab from Judge Judy that you want on Love and Parole, can 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 I use it? Uh, Everything that I said about music, I would say about audio as well. It's owned by by somebody, whether that be Judge Judy's production company, the broadcast network that that broadcast it. It's important to distinguish between the uh, the legal position and the practical position because some people say, well, I've heard heaps of other podcasters who put Judge Judy in their podcast and they didn't have a problem. And, of course, you may, without consent, put a Judge Judy clip in your podcast and somebody, uh, Judge Judy or Judge Judy's immediate family, may never hear it, they may never complain, or if they hear it, they might not care. They're the practicalities. Um, obviously, the less successful you are, the more chance... Uh, there is that you'll get away with it because no one will hear it, but I don't presume you're here seeking lack of success. So I think you've got to plan to be successful and the the practical reality that you might not get caught is not, in my view, uh, a constructive way to build a business enterprise or a creative endeavour. The other thing that I would just add to that is when you go to the next step of taking this podcast that you've poured your heart and soul into for months, if not years, to actually distributing it, you're going to be asked to give what's called a warranty by your dis- whoever's going to distribute it or whoever's going to fund it is going to ask you for a warranty. And a warranty is just a fancy legal way of saying that you're giving someone a promise that you've done all the things you should have done so that your podcast isn't illegal. It's not infringing anybody else's rights. Usually that warranty is partnered with something that's called an indemnity, which is a way of saying if you haven't, got all the things you promised you had in the warranty, and we get sued, you give us the money. So it's really, really important not to just use audio or music that you don't have a license for and hope that you don't get caught because it really will restrict your ability to actually ever distribute that content. And with the Creative Commons stuff, when you're saying making your podcast put on iTunes, it might be one thing, but if it starts to go on other platforms or used differently, those rights can then change. Yeah, so even a Creative Commons licence is not unlimited. And so it will typically say, you can use my work under these circumstances and in these ways. And if what you want to do goes beyond the... uh, the rights that the Creative Commons license grants you, then you're you're back to not having the right to doing to do what you want to do. Now, this has been a horribly abridged version of everything you need to consider when making a podcast and wanting to be on the right side of the law. Uh, so there are a couple of follow-ups you can do. Arts Law, as Suzanne said, is an amazing resource and it's available. It's a community legal centre available specifically to artists and podcasters are rightly in, within that. Um, uh, so we're a national organisation and you can p- submit a query on our form and somebody like me will give you a call back. And the other thing to remember is that we've got template agreements for podcasters, including the releases we've been talking about, the music contracts and um, commissioning agreements. And there, there is a fair bit we didn't get to and I apologise horribly for that. Um, but you know a bit more about releases now, which is great. <laughs> Uh, and yeah that's it we'll all be around for uh, for some of the rest of the day so please come up ask questions (laughs) 
That was Eliza Salos, Suzanne Derry and Brett Oaten. As Suzanne mentioned, the Arts Law Centre of Australia is a great place to bring any questions you have that weren't covered in this episode. Their website is artslaw.com.au. Our podcast is produced by Selena Shannon and the music is composed by James Milsom. If you haven't already, subscribe to our podcast to hear the rest of the sessions from our festival, as well as talks and workshops from previous years. And stay in touch. Sign up to our newsletter at audiocraft.com.au. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at AudioCraftFest. Fest.